everybody. I am Jared Campbell. I'm joined here with Jason Griggs, a veteran teacher here at the Florida Institute of Technology. Welcome to Fit to Teach, Jason. Thank you, Jared. I'm happy to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your teaching experience? Well, I kind of fell into teaching, actually, in 1999. I was still in graduate school at the University of South Alabama, and I had a professor who said in class one night, does anybody want to go to Japan to teach for a year? And that sounded like a good idea. I'd never really considered too much about wanting to be a teacher necessarily, but uh, went over there and started doing it. And I was only going to do it for one year, you know, to take a little sabbatical from school, I guess, but ended up staying in Japan two years and loving teaching. What did you teach while you were in Japan? It was English as a second language, but I started in middle schools and elementary schools, so that's trial by fire there. If you can teach middle school, as you well know, you can teach anyone. I'm pretty sure it goes even farther than that. If you can teach middle school, you can do anything. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a tough age. Even in Japan, I mean, uh, of course, in America, a lot of people have this impression of Japanese kids being super disciplined, and, you know, overall, they are, but they have problem children in Japan, just like problem children in America. They have better school, public schools in Japan, just like we have better public schools in America. So it was interesting. and uh, But I definitely developed a love for teaching by taking that adventure. So what do you teach here at the Florida Institute of Technology? I teach writing, typically uh, basic level writing, mostly adjunct because my full-time job, as you know, is an instructional designer here on campus. But before I came to Florida Tech, I mean, since 99, I've been teaching pretty much full-time. A lot of higher education experience, mostly. Just those five years in Japan, teaching high school and middle school. But then, uh, yeah, I've taught literature, composition, creative writing. So, a lot of teaching experience. Tell me, is there something that you do in your class that is uh, particularly successful for you, that really gets the students going, and, and how do you know that it's working? Well, um, at my college-level experience, um, I've always taught say, COM or English 1101 or 101, depending on what it's called, depending on what school you go to. But And those classes are required. And most students don't necessarily want to take those classes. I mean, here at Florida Tech's a great example. I mean, with the engineering students really don't want to take those classes. They don't feel like they need them in any way. So I think my main job is motivation and motivating students to show them the benefit of taking classes they don't necessarily want to take. And that approach kind of goes back to a sixth grade teacher I had, Mrs. West. I remember the first day of class, she said, how many in here, how many of you students, your favorite class is English? And no one raised their hand. She said, by the end of this year, most of you are going to say English is your favorite class. And it wasn't because she was a super nice lady. In fact, she was kind of mean as a teacher, but she was super engaging and had a great ability to motivate students. And that's kind of what I learned when I started teaching in Japan in 99, because I didn't know much about teaching and never really thought about it, I just sat down and made a list of all the great teachers I had growing up. You know, Miss, Mr. Smith in second grade, Miss Zarin in fifth grade, Miss West in sixth grade. You notice I'm skipping a lot of people there <laughs> because I had a lot of crappy teachers. I mean, I grew up in southeast Alabama, and Alabama's not known for a great public education system or much else for that matter, except maybe college football. But I did have some really good teachers, and I started thinking, okay, what was good about those teachers? And almost across the board, it was the ability to motivate students, and a lot of times students who didn't want to be there. For example, in some classes I taught, like, eleven English 1102 or COM 1102 here at Florida Tech and at my previous job at Troy University, these classes were writing about literature. And at Troy University, I had a lot of kind of liberal arts majors here at Florida Tech, not so many, but... What I would try to do is pick readings that students could engage with. And I tried to pick things that they had never read before. For example, to the 
uh, drama section, a lot of instructors would make for the whole section, the students have to read one long Shakespeare play, Hamlet, King Lear, or something like that. And I love those personally, but a lot of students don't. And if you're only teaching one play for, say, five weeks, if the student doesn't like the play, they're going to be bored those whole five weeks. So what I would do would, would be do a series of one-act plays, say seven, by authors they've never heard of. And all the plays would be modern. So they would have themes of, say, dating in the modern world or, I mean, something else. I would use obscure authors like David Ives and Jane Martin. And these authors have cool stories and they're writing about today. And I would always just tell students, like, if you don't like one play this week, you might like the one tomorrow, uh, next week or the next day. So I put a lot of effort in to try to create cool assignments, engaging assignments, just to try to get the students to take ownership of the class a little bit. So are you saying that if you talk about uh, contemporary issues, that students generally uh, will uh, gravitate towards understanding that these things have worth? Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and not just some abstract concepts or some abstract exercise and thought, which of course has value, but these students need to apply these to their own lives. Each individual student, I think, in some way to get meaning. Of course, I can try to generate discussion and involvement and engagement in the classroom as a unit. But in the end, those students are at their homes by themselves, usually working on these assignments or wherever the dorm room, wherever they are working on this. Mm -hmm. They have to do it themselves. Yeah. yeah. That, uh, that reminds me, a wise person once told me that if you can make your lesson about who's going out with who or what's for lunch, you will never lose your students. They will be there till the end and contemplating in the way that you wish. So how do you know that they're successful, though? How, what, what is the result of you providing a more of a contemporary lesson on some of these uh, you know, classic themes? Well, I think uh, in a face-to-face -face class, it's kind of easier to tell, of course, because you have the students right in front of you, and you can see the students, say, at the first week or two of class who are not really engaged, not speaking much, and you can see them kind of come out of their shell a little bit and start um, participating in the class, and the class discussions get lively. And so it's kind of easier in face-to-face -face classes, and you can see, I mean, it's pretty easy if you've been teaching a while, if you, because most of the time students in my classes, they write papers. Um, I can kind of tell how much time a student works on a paper. It's pretty obvious. The way, the, the level of writing, the level of thought, and a lot of times I see improvement with that throughout the semester, which... I like. And I love when students come up to me after the class or write in student evaluations, this is the only English class I've ever had I've liked. Or it was super hard, but I learned a lot. Of course, some students care about grades and it will get you, might be into a medical school or something. But in the end, I don't care if a student makes an A or B or C necessarily. If they learn something, they take something away that will help them in their next class, in the next class, in the next class, and in their job in the future. To me, grades aren't as much as important as what you learn. Mm-hmm. I had a, a, a an instructor when I was in uh, ninth grade, uh, freshman in high school, and uh, he taught a world history class with, that I completely failed. But what I learned from that class was that it was actually cool to be smart, and I see him him as a hero. Of course, now when we're talking about a, a university experience, you know, those grades do kind of translate into uh, careers. Right. Or, or something else. So I think the motivation for a grade is probably a little bit different for a freshman in high school than it would be for a freshman in, in, in the university. But uh, that being said, I'm still very grateful for the experience that I've had in, in that class. Oh, one that of my worst classes I had in college was Physics 1. The semester it was 
this professor of nuclear physics who was teaching at a community college was kind of weird. We started that quarter, it was a quarter at the time, with 20-something students in the class. By the end of that quarter, there were four of us left. I mean, I bombed the first test, like an F. I mean, just a 30-something F, and that was one of the higher scores in the class because I didn't know how to study. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did what I did in high school, which was very little to study for the test. In high school, I just walked through. It was super easy. I was also stubborn, and so I was like, well, I'm not going to let this guy get me. I'm not quitting, but I learned how to study in that class, and I made a C in that class, and I didn't make many Cs in college, and but then I had physics too, and there were four of us in the class, and I had to work my guts out to get a B, but I learned how to study. And I learned how to dig into a subject. In physics three, there were only three of us because some guy just burned out, one of the four who survived. He just completely burned out, but they had to offer the class because it was a series. And I ended up making an A in that class. I don't know if he had pity, took some pity on me, but I worked <laughs> so hard. Yeah. And, th- and that taught me a valuable lesson. Never worked harder. I didn't necessarily like the guy. The guy was a bit of a jerk. But in some ways, he was my best professor because I learned a lot about physics and a lot about calculus, but also how to think differently and how to study. So I think there's value in the classes that you don't need or want. Do you think there is a connection between how somebody uh, behaves as a student to how they behave as an instructor? Uh, It's tough for me to say without knowing each individual, but I know it influenced me a lot because I think you you said a second ago about you learned that it's okay to be smart I had a similar lesson in fifth grade. I mentioned Miss Zarin earlier, my fifth grade teacher. She's the one that kind of took me out of the trash heap a little bit and said, you know, you're a smart kid. You need to be doing more. I mean, I kind of identified myself up until that point as poor white trash kid. I mean, that's kind of how I was lumped in in those years. I, up until fifth grade, I got the worst teacher, it seemed like, always, and I wasn't necessarily at the best public school in the town, and I seemed to always get the worst teacher, with the exception of second grade somehow. My, my parents, they weren't the type of people in the early 80s to go whine at the school and made sure I had a certain teacher, and they didn't know who the certain teachers were They were supposed to, I was supposed to get. But in fifth grade, I happened to luck into this really good teacher, and she's like, you know, you're not who they say you are. You should be working harder. You should be more engaged. You're smarter than this. You're better than this. And I've always took that lesson to, I mean, and try to apply that to students that I work with as well and to motivate those students who don't think they, well, I've never been good at English. Well, I don't care about that. You can be. I've never been good at something, but I can be. I mean, if you work at it, I mean, English is just like anything else. I I try to demystify it a little bit. They think just because they were not good in middle school or high school, they can't be good in college. That's, to me, that's not right. And so maybe I, as an instructor, have empathy for students because some people didn't have empathy for me as a student. What, what do you think the main difference is between a bad teacher and a good teacher? I mean, I've worked with a lot of other instructors here in higher education and in Japan as well, in middle school and high schools. But it seems like the less effective instructors seem to not care about their students quite as much. Mm-hmm. They're more in it for themselves for some reason, or they're into the idea of being a teacher, or they got stuck with that job. I, I know I've talked to some colleagues who complain about the students a lot, and they complain about their job a lot. But I think this might be true of any profession in some way. Mm-hmm. What makes an effective employer is someone who is really ineffective, someone who wants to be there. I mean, to me, teaching is magical, and just watching the light turn on for people, it's amazing. And of course, you can't reach everyone. I mean, I'm not some super idealistic guy who thinks I I can make everyone a great writer, but 
I think I can motivate people more than some, and I care about students, and I think effective teachers care about students more than ineffective ones who only care about their own world and not necessarily the world of students. I think it, good teachers have to be student-centered. You know, I, I wonder if teachers who teach the way they were taught, if they miss out on some things, you know, um, because uh, because I, I look at teaching as being this kind of like you're surfing new knowledge with the students, you know, and you never know where that's going to lead to. Right. Uh, and a lot of people will will stick to the way they had been in the past or the experiences that they have had in the past, and they neglect that uh, that bright future of the, that unknowing. You know, I think I think sometimes uh, teachers who uh, stick too close to to those roots that they they don't necessarily uh, see the the blossom from the, from their own perspective you know of themselves as an instructor I think you have to be flexible I mean for sure I mean I've taught back-to-back sections of a class say English 1102 and each class has its own character I mean I'm teaching the same lesson back to back but the classes are different so I have to approach the the same material a little differently based on the personalities of the class. I think some instructors, they just go up there and they do their thing and there could be no students in the class for all they care. And they don't care how the students do. They don't care if a student shows up for class. I, I heard about this one uh, instructor from a, from another colleague of mine who uh, talked about he was taking a, a, a master's level course in uh, something, I don't remember, something science, something very math-based. And the professor would start writing on the board uh, he had uh, like chalkboards. This is back when they used chalkboards, right? Uh, you start There's still some on campus the, here, I think. <laughs> yeah, probably, I think so. They're, they're very good ones, though. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, they they would start on the you know from the student's perspective on the leftmost board. They would keep facing the chalkboard and they would write their notes. Never turn around. They would get all the way and fill up the entire set of chalkboards that were in the class. And when they reached the end of that writing surface, that was when the class was up. He never turned around. I'm sure there was a lot of sleeping and cell phone enjoyment in that class. Yeah, I don't know if cell phones were such a distraction here. Are cell phones a distraction for you? Not really. You just nip that in the bud to start with, usually. Yeah, how do you how do you do that? Just make a clear statement or two at the beginning, and if there's some infractions to start with, you, you clamp down hard. I mean, just a bit like a drill instructor mentality. You go in hard to start with and then ease up as you go along. But, yeah, I never really have a problem with cell phones. I mean... Someone is staring at their crotch. You say, "Oh, you're staring at your crotch," and usually a little, <laughs> little public embarrassment will weeds it out a little bit. <laughs> that, that, that's good advice. There, that's good advice for sure. Yeah. You got to know who's in front of you a little bit. It's just simple rhetoric. It's just audience analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, each class is a little different, and each student's a little different. Each class takes his own personality. Each student has their own personality. But I think you have to know your audience a little bit. It's interesting that. My previous job at Troy in Alabama, it was a satellite branch of the main university, and they catered to adult learners. But we also accepted dual enrollment students from the high school. So I would ha- I had classes where I'd have a 16-year-old in the class sitting next to a 70-year-old student. And it's an interesting thing to think about in a lot of ways. A lot of those adult learners, a lot of them had failed previously at college or failed at their attempt to go to college or in some of them it was their lifelong dream to be in college. But they didn't think they had the skills as the recently graduated high school student. And a lot of times they had way more skills than the recently graduated high school student because they'd been in the workplace and knew what it took to be successful. How did you manage that, though? How did you manage? You have these uh, 
perhaps idealistic youngsters that are in there with some people who have had a lot more life experience. How did you, did you find the interactions between those sets of classmates? Like for instance, discussions, how, how did that work? How did that, how did that go? Did you ever have any clashes? Did you have anything like that? Oh, not really. No, I was always tried to, you know, try to get the older students to, well, tell them a little about when you graduated high school. And then I would try to get the younger students to see that, okay, this is perhaps your future a little bit. Try to give them, some, you know, find the common ground between them where they could share experiences. They ended up learning a lot from each other. I always like uh, classes where it felt like you were together, like those classes that feel kind of that familial sense or that, you know, you're in the trenches together or something like this. It sounds like you you fostered that. Well, yeah, I always try to uh, create, I don't create groups in my classes. I created teams and a lot of my team exercises and grades, they were interdependent on each other. So it wasn't just the group does a project and the whole group gets the same grade. There's part of it was that, but also let them rate each other mm. as a team. And also had a, I typically have this assignment where each member of the group has a hundred points to give out to all the group members and they have to divvy it up that hundred points. If there's four people in the group, do they give each person 25 points or do they give, you know, one person 10 and then divvy it up the other way. And that kind of polices itself a little bit. Oh, and also try to create a little competition among the teams because some students seem to thrive on competition a little bit. I mean, it's crazy. I would do these games in class sometimes where it would be a team competition and it would be worth some worthless 10 points. I mean, nothing. I mean, it's sort of like whose line is it anyway? The points don't matter. But of course, I don't tell them that necessarily. <laughs> But just when you introduce competition, you would have these students who wouldn't say much at all. Suddenly the knives are out for them. You know, they, they've got to win. It's, <laughs> it's so interesting to watch uh, students come alive for a little competition. They get a lot out of it. Kind of goes back to your original point about the, the effect that motivation has. And the point you made about marching forward together. If you start getting where they're interdependent on each other, they don't feel like it's just them. Or if it's a, oh, we're doing groove work. I got to deal with these people. And no, someone's not going to do the work. Well, they're all going to do the work. You made a differentiation between group and team. Yes. What, what is the difference between group and team? Well, I think a lot of students have that negative connotations of group work. That just sounds like a, a bunch of people thrown together. But a team tends to have a common goal. I mean, especially if you have students who are athletes or have some experience working as a team. And I think when they get into the job force and the job market and when they start getting into the real world, I'm on a number of committees, which I consider teams to solve common problems. That's what I always kind of tried to create a sense of community that a team has. Teams tend to bond together, whereas groups just exist. I mean, you can, we have a group of people you sit with at lunch. That, that's not necessarily a team. That just people wander in and sit down together. What did you do to foster a team as opposed to what someone would do to foster a group? Well, again, some of the competitions among the teams, I would do that. So they they had the bond together to beat, quote, unquote, the other teams in these competitions. Also, I, I tend to give them team names. You so, gave the names or did the, did the students come up with their own? Well, no, I, I let the students pick, but I gave them like, okay, everybody, okay, you're an NFL team. Pick a name as a group or as a team. You know, you, you got to make up your own team. But they all had to – I would usually do a theme for that class. So everyone's a football team or a baseball team or a soccer team or whatever. I see. I see. Or you can come up with your own creative team name. Sometimes I did that as well. But it had to be like city mascot or Okay, I see. I see. Something like that. And I've given that I mentioned earlier about that rating sheet where uh teammates rate each other. I've given that to a few instructors here on campus. Yeah, that's 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 fantastic. I used it at my cool. previous school but where they have to 
you have a hundred points to give to each members of your all the members of your group. How do you divvy it up? So how do you do that in your how do you how do you assess that in your class? Do you actually give them all the points? What if, for instance, one kid is one of the more pop maybe he's the he's the captain of the football team or something, you know, and everybody's a little worried that he's gonna do something against them or retaliate or something like that if he doesn't get the greatest grade on the assignment. Like, oh, I've never seen that. No. You've never seen that? It tends to it tends to self police pretty well. I mean, mm-hmm. I know which students are slacking in the teams. But so the students, but students love that they can rate their teammates. And it's not just the two who are doing all the work, do a great assignment, and then the slackers get the good grade also. I mean, there is a group or team grade for the final project, let's say, for the final team project and the teamwork, which I give. But also a component of each student's grade is what the teammates give them. Mm-hmm. That can be brutal, I think. Oh, I like it. It, it. it can be brutal for the slackers. Yeah, yeah, for the slackers is what I but meant. But I've never seen where someone is doing a lot of work in the team and then the teammates just slam them for that. It's always the slackers who get slammed. and But that tends to eliminate the slackers a little bit. So do you have this, do you have a, a written version of this, like of uh, like a, a gr- the grading sheet or something that you give to your students? Do you do you have that? Oh, yes. W- well, not you? on me right now. Well, not on you right uh, now. I got but, a digital copy somewhere. So digital copy, would you send that to me and I will uh, put it on the, the podcast page? Yeah, sure. Okay, great, because I think people would, would really appreciate that and it would help remind them that this is uh, an opportunity that, that they have in their class. I mean, it's like the the senior design projects, which we saw not too long ago here. Yeah. At, uh, Phenomenal. Gleason's. But that's teams. That's yeah, teamworks, that's right. typically, I think. That's not like a group project where you randomly throw three people together. That's I'm true. sure there's some slackers involved in those, and I've actually heard from some of my former students here on campus. <laughs> Man, I did a lot more work than that person, but... Yeah, I've heard these same stories. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's uh, the the reality training, right? But I think <laughs> the key is for teams or groups or whatever you want to call it is to create that interdependence. So they are dependent upon each other for the grade. and But also they can rate each other. And there, there's consequences for that rating. Not just a student comes to the instructor and says, well, my teammate is a slacker. A lot of times nothing happens there. And the student really doesn't have much power in that. But if you empower the students like, well, look, you're going to be rating each other. And your teammates will be rating you also. And their rating impacts your grade. That's good. That's very motivating. Yeah, I would think I can. I can imagine that would be some people would be like doing backflips, and other people would be like, "Oh no, I gotta actually work." Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's very. I, I like the idea that that definitely pleases the assignment. In the, but in but the having the work. same teams throughout the whole semester, though, with some in class work and some of those competitions, they develop relationships. Yeah, and and probably methods to keep people motivated within the group. You know, their own personal methods. You know, I had a I had a this couple. They met in one of my classes, and they were in a team. They ended up moving to Australia to go to grad school together. Oh, wow. And I think they're married now. Oh, wow. <laughs> you're, you're Cupid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Teachers are, do the darndest things. They never know where those things can lead. That's true. That's true. So what does your future bring you? That's a great question. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Hope I keep teaching. Yeah, that's, that's good. Keep learning. Keep having fun. I love my job, so I love what I do. All right, on behalf of the Florida Institute of Technology, the Teaching Council here, I've got Mr. Jason Griggs. I'd like to thank him for coming into the Fit to Teach podcast studios that we're teaching, that we're doing finally at the glorious WFIT studios in Studio B. Uh, thanks for having us, and uh, happy teaching, everyone. Mm-hmm.